Welcome. Welcome to another edition of SCOTUS Pod. My name's Ian Taranji. Uh, I'm here with uh, my good friend and co-host, New York appellate lawyer, Sanford Hausler. Sandy, how you doing? I'm doing just great. Good to be here. Good good to be here with you as well again. This is uh epi- this is episode, yeah, elsewhere, elsewhere. You're you're, you're joining us by phone, which is going to be more of our normal setup here. We were we were fortunate to have you here in DC uh, at the Heartcast Media Studios uh, for episode 01.01. This is episode 01.02. And uh, what are we? We're a Supreme Court podcast. We are, you know, not former clerks, not Supreme Court practitioners, but we are are, are lovers and watchers of the so courts. So far. So far, yeah, I guess there's always that opportunity. There's always that opportunity. Uh, a lot of immigration cases at the at the court this year, and we're going to be talking about one of them later today. Spoiler alert! Um, but uh, before we get started, we want to thank Heartcast Media for producing this show. We've got Panama behind the board, and she is, as always, doing a great job. And and thanks to Molly for um, giving us giving us a platform to talk about uh, something that Sandy, you and I are both very passionate about: the Supreme Court. So um, let's get. Let's just let's just jump right into it. Uh, I think we we want to do give you a little preview of what we're going to talk about today because it's it's pretty action packed show. So I think we want to start first talking about some oral arguments that took place last week, some cases of interest, and something we can keep an eye on for when those opinions do actually come down and and what they mean. You know, what we really want to do is talk about in all of these cases, what do these opinions, what do these actions by the court really mean. Um, so we're going to talk about some oral arguments that took place last week. Uh, then we're going to come back in a second segment and talk about uh, an abortion case out of Louisiana, uh, which has some very interesting uh, dimensions to it. Uh, then a case about a U.S. border agent, border patrol agent, standing in the United States who shot a Mexican national standing on Mexican soil, a cross-border shooting um, you would think that that's pretty cut and dry, but it's not. So we're going to talk about that. Never is. It never is. And finally, we're going to talk about um, some arguments that are coming up. Actually, this week, uh, I believe both of these are the, the Hernandez, the, the cross-border shooting, and the, the DACA cases, I believe, are both being argued this coming week. So we'll preview. Yes, they'll both be argued on the 12th which is Tuesday. Which is Tuesday, yeah, so just in a couple of days. Um, so we'll preview those arguments, and maybe after the oral arguments are finally held, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll revisit and talk about some of the questions that, uh, that the justices had for the litigants in those cases. So let's just jump into it, Sandy. Tell us about some of the arguments that took place last week. Well, it's been a busy week in the Supreme Court. They had six arguments this past week, and while I'd love to speak about all six of them, uh, if we did that, we'd probably need about two two hours, not just uh, um, one. So let's start off with Kansas versus Glover, which raises the question of whether a police officer can assume the driver of a car is the record owner so as to justify a Fourth Amendment stop. And this case involved a police officer who um, was following the car, wanted to stop it because he he knew that the uh, driver had lost uh, his, his license to be suspended and was not 
able to drive, but yet the car was on the road, and he was pretty sure it was the drive. It was the record owner who was driving it, so we stopped them, and he was right. But the driver, uh, when the case came to court, said he didn't have the authority to stop me. He couldn't stop me because he had no idea who was driving the car. Yeah, and this he didn't is, have a reasonable suspicion. And this is a question about probable cause, right? Uh, whether so whether reasonable, it's a lower, even a lower uh, standard, of reasonable suspicion. He had to have a reasonable suspicion to at least stop the car. And so the he, argument, he, so, by the time he arrested him, he had he, had, he certainly had uh, probable cause. Yeah. So the argument then was that there was no reasonable suspicion. You know, he hadn't he hadn't swerved. He wasn't speeding or anything like that. The cop just knew who the owner of this vehicle was. I guess and correct. He knew that the record owner's license had been suspended. He did not know that the record owner was driving, but he assumed it because you know yeah. his car. Someone was driving, and it was probably him. Yeah, and these fourth cir- the uh, fourth circuit, these Fourth Amendment cases are always interesting because they deal with um, police power and police authority to stop and detain and 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 arrest um, citizens, individuals. And, and so, you know, those cases are always juicy Supreme Court cases and usually find them their ways into criminal procedure and criminal law textbooks that law students have to sweat over uh, in the future. Well, what's, interest, what's interesting is the um, case was not decided on fully, at least not fully, on testimony. It was, it was decided on stipulated facts. And... This was a big problem for Justice Gorsuch because he stipulated, he says, usually what happens is you put the police officer on the stand and he'll say, they'll say what happened and he'll, and you'll say, well, how do you know it was the driver who, uh, the record holder who was the driver? And the police officer will talk about his years of experience that normally in these cases, it always is the driver and there's, there's a reason to believe it was. But in this case, they didn't even have that. He was like, totally befuddled by the by the idea that everything was based on an assumption without any facts to back it up. Okay, Sandy, so tell me about another case that was argued last week. Another case argued was Allen versus Cooper, which dealt with the issue of whether Congress had abrogated state sovereign immunity in providing remedies for authors whose original works infringed by state. Fourth Circuit said no. Now, sovereign immunity is the doctrine under which a sovereign, and here we're talking the sovereign we're talking about are states, um, and not be sued without their consent. And that's the law under the 11th Amendment of the, of the Constitution that provides for the sovereign immunity. Um, now, under now, now the um, Congress can abrogate state sovereign immunity, it has to have do so under a specific provision of the Constitution. And that was really the issue that was uh, raised here, because um, there are cases which have held that under Article One of the Constitution, which lists the constitutional powers, uh, that 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 does not include the the uh, the power to abrogate sovereign immunity. Now, in this case, we were dealing with video of a of salvage efforts of Blackbeard ship. Believe it or not, uh, Blackbeard ship had been found, and they were salvaging it, and they hired a company to video it for them uh, to show that everything was being done according to Hoyle, and North Carolina took that video and used it in some way. The, the, 
court could decision wasn't to clear what they did with it, but they did thing that violated the Constitution and co- the um, that violated the copyright, and the copyright holder was not happy about that, so we sued. Yeah. So I guess my question is, so if we're hunting uh, the shipwreck of Blackbeard's ship, did they find the wooden chest with all the gold doubloons inside or not? Uh, not clear. I suspect that they did not. Okay. Probably not. Probably not. I'm sorry for that little diversion there. But, uh, yeah, what else? Uh, like, are there any interesting issues that, uh, that, that come up in this case? Well, there were a series of cases that have come down from the court in the 1990s. Uh, Seminole Tribe of Florida versus Florida, which dealt with Indian gaming, and Florida Prepaid Post-Secondary Education Expense Board versus College Savings Bank, which was a patent case. And these indicated that Congress had no power under Article One to abrogate the uh, sovereign immunity of a state. However, there was a third case, which I believe was 2006, Virginia Community College versus Katz, which held that those cases, the 1990s cases, um, were really dicta because they they went beyond the holding. They didn't say this provision of Article One does not include the um, power to abrogate sovereign immunity and this power. So it said that that they, that it was not not bound by those decisions. It was not uh, sorry decisive an issue, which has been very important in the court in the, the past few uh, weeks, months, and will probably continue to be important. As we get to the uh, the abortion case, yeah. which we will be mm. talking about a little later. That's right. That's right. Stare decisis. And we discussed it. Ca- we discussed it at the last episode, and we will discuss it again in future episodes. I'm sure. <laughs> yes, it's going to be a recurring theme. I think this this term. Yes, in cats, in cats, they were dealing with the bankruptcy power, and under the under the first under the first Article One. And uh, it was a case where the uh, trustee in bankruptcy was trying to claw back money that had been paid to the government, so sued the government to get money back. And the court held that even though that uh, abrogated the sovereign immunity of the state, it was perfectly fine under under uh, Article One. So, bottom line so here. So now we're in. So I'm now sorry. We're, go ahead. Okay, now we're in uh, court talking about this. Uh, copyright provision, which specifically abrogates sovereign immunity, says that you have the power to sue the state. And the question is, can you do that? There are cases that say yes, there are cases that say no. Yeah. Did that overrule the earlier cases, or was it really just an exception to those cases? Hard to tell. And uh, we will be back to talk about this at some point when uh, a decision is made, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, sovereign immunity is a big, big issue, and and uh, there's a vast body of case laws. Only, I'm sure, only just the tip of which you were able to uh, to articulate there. What? Um, let's move on really quickly, uh, so we can so we can get to uh, some of the meatier cases that are that are coming up this term. What else uh, of okay, interest was was came up last week? The last the last case I will discuss uh, today is County of Maui. Hawaii versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund. That oral argument, I will say, has a distinction that I don't think has ever happened in a Supreme Court case, so I could be wrong, uh, where mention of Agatha Christie 
came <laughs> up during the argument. And I'll tell you why when we get to it, because obviously need a little more background before I can uh, explain why Agatha Christie, what Agatha Christie has to do with a case dealing with clean water. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question in the case is whether pollution coming from a point source, a point source is something like a pipe or a ditch, something that a water would go through, uh, that ultimately enters um, navigable waters, is covered by the Clean Water Act when it goes through a non-point source. Now, in this case, the non-point source was groundwater. Instead of leaking pollutants into the ocean, the river, whatever, in this case, it leaked into the groundwater, and that groundwater eventually seeped into the ocean and caused all kinds of problems pollutants usually cause. Right. So the question is whether, since it didn't come directly from a point source to uh, the navigable waters, whether it was covered by the uh, Clean Water Act. And the issue, the issue that was most important to the justices, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether any of the justices think that that under no circumstances could there be some kind of indirect leaking into the into the navigable waters that would be covered by the CWA. As, uh, Justice um, Chief Justice Roberts was talking about well, what he stopped the uh, the pipe five five uh, inches away from the ocean and it has to seep through ground or something for five for five inches. That can, can they do that? I mean, would that be would that be okay? Would that mean that the uh, Clean Water Act wasn't violated? But during the course of his uh, during the course of his, of argument, he almost seemed to take the other the other view. He was talking about well, what happens what happens if you have a landowner who has a septic tank and it leaks, and ultimately somehow it gets into navigable waters? You mean that this, this homeowner who had a leaking septic tank is suddenly liable for tens of thousands of dollars or whatever whatever uh, gets imposed on by the uh, Water Act, and Justice Kagan came back and said, "No, that's not going to work, because what happens is the government has to show that it comes from a septic tank. There are hundreds of septic tanks in that same area where this one septic tank. Is. How are they going to prove it came specifically from that septic tank?" So Chief Justice Roberts said, "Ah, oh. so <laughs> hundreds of septic tanks. You can't tell which one which one come, the the pollutant comes from." Uh, means they all get away with it. It's like an Agatha Christie story. Somebody, a hundred people shoot a gun, but we don't know which which gun was the one that killed the guy. Yeah. So they all get off. He seemed uh, kind of unhappy with that solution. But really, if you go back to his original proposition, where he was questioning about the uh, the five inches or the five feet, the where the uh, the point the point source stopped. Five uh, five feet from the uh, ocean, whether that whether that would could possibly uh, impose liability, uh, you think that he, that he would agree with with Justice Kagan uh, on this. But we will see what happens. They're they're trying to find a limiting principle, and I assume that they will find one because they'll have to decide this case in some way. Right, and uh, we will see what happens. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So well, we're going to take a quick break that maybe 
uh, only a second or two if you're listening to this in your car. But uh, we will be back and we'll talk about uh, Louisiana abortion case. Okay, and we are back, back. Welcome back to SCOTUS Pod. Um, all right, Sandy, so this is obviously going to be, I think, an extraordinarily consequential term um, in the Supreme Court. And, you know, over the, le- the, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be previewing some of these uh, uh, cases that are either have already been argued at the, at the court and we're still just waiting on the, on the final opinion, um, or oral arguments have not yet taken place. So I think what has the potential to be perhaps the most consequential case of the term is an abortion case out of Louisiana. It's the case June Medical Services LLC versus Gee. Let me give a quick background on this case, and it's actually going to require me speaking a little bit about a, a prior Supreme Court case called Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Um, in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, which was decided in 2016, so we have a different makeup of the court in 2016 than we do here in 2019. Um, in Whole Women's Health, we dealt with a Texas law that required abortion providers to have hospital-admitting privileges. Now, that sounds all perfectly reasonable. You know, doctors, physicians should have, you know, admitting privileges. And, um, but the practical application of that law meant that, I believe it was in the entire state of Texas, that, that, that there would only be three abortion providers um, for what is, I think, the third or fourth most populous state in the union. Um, and as we all know, or I don't know, maybe we don't know, but, but kind of a little bit of background on abortion law, you know, we had Roe versus Wade in, uh, the early seventies that kind of established, uh, a right under the constitution, um, to an abortion, uh, not in every case, not in all cases, not a right, um, that, that, that is, you know, willy nilly unable to be regulated, but a right nonetheless. And we saw in the 90s, actually, uh, an episode, uh, our prior episode, we talked to Nancy Martyr, and she clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens uh, during the term when the Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania v. Casey um, was decided. And and that was a case that really kind of brought into into sharp relief the, the idea that an undue burden on the right to an abortion is unconstitutional. So now fast forward to 2016, we've got this Texas law that says, you know, abortion providers have to have hospital admitting privileges. The Supreme Court says, in a 5-4 decision, says, no, that law is unconstitutional. And, um, you know, part of the five in the majority was Justice Anthony Kennedy. As we may or may not know, Justice Kennedy um, has retired from the court since then and has been replaced with Justice Brett Kavanaugh, um, whose views on abortion we don't yet know, but um, I think <laughs> I think we know. Uh, so to me, this seems like a, a, a game. Oh, and, and so what this case now, the, the June Medical Services case is is discussing is Louisiana's law, which is exactly the same as the Texas law that was struck down in 2016. 
It requires abortion providers to have hospital admitting privileges in order to continue providing that service. And so this raises a whole host of issues, um, stare decisis being one of them, uh, a concept that we discussed in, in, in the prior episode. Um, but just uh, how this case is going to change uh, the landscape of abortion law under the Constitution. Um, I mean, there's a possibility that this case could be the death knell of Roe v. Wade. They, the, I mean, we don't know how Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh will decide this case. And certainly, there's a whole lot of chutzpah involved with bringing, uh, uh, bringing up another case that has the exact same facts as a case that you decided just three years ago. But well, under the doctrine of stare decisis, which obviously, as we've said, is an important uh, doctrine that is being talked about a lot in uh, the court these days. Shouldn't this case be reversed because a prior case has already been uh, it's just been decided, really, literally just been decided yeah. on this very same issue? Right, right, right. So just really quickly, um, the, the, the procedural posture uh, in, the, in the Louisiana District Court... Uh, the district court judge said, look, this law is exactly the same as the law that was just struck down as unconstitutional. Um, this one is as well. And uh, then it was taken up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which, you know, for a lay audience, you know, you, the Fifth Circuit, I tend to think of as the most conservative of the circuits, the same way that people look at the Ninth Circuit as being, you know, the most liberal of the circuits. Um, you know, it, it, those are those are perceptions more than realities. But um, you know, this is a if any if any circuit is going to take up this case and come to a contrary conclusion, you know, for the purposes of putting it in front of the Supreme Court, it would be the Fifth Circuit. Um, well, how, so, did, how did the Fifth Circuit distinguish the case? Not very well, I don't think. Um, it's it's. You know, the district's, the petitioners noted, um, you know, that the Fifth Circuit was basically asserting without any evidence in the record that, that, that more credentialing of these abortion providers leads to improved health and safety. Um, according to the petitioners, that's not, there's not the evidentiary record to show that, um, you know, and, and, you know, what we'll be talking about in, probably down the road with the, with the DACA case. You know, when, when the government takes action, it has to have some kind of a compelling reason to do so. It has to have a good reason. You, know, you can't just willy-nilly uh, uh, decide to, to, to take actions, and, and, and you've got to be addressing some ill or, or, or some problem and be able to articulate what that is. And, and in this instance, the Fifth Circuit seemed to be accepting without evidence the argument that that more credentialing of these uh, abortion providers leads to improved health and safety, when in fact there appears to be very scant evidence in the record of that. So the Fifth Circuit, I mean, look, we're all about real talk here. <laughs> and the Fifth Circuit, I think, wanted just wanted to get this case back up in front of the court because it's a different makeup in the court. 
And so shouldn't this go ahead? So shouldn't this uh, be be uh, very simple for the Supreme Court? It should just vacate and remand. So they've already decided the issue. They have decided the issue. Um, they decided the issue five four with Justice Kennedy as part of the five. Um, the four are still on the court now, joined by Justice Kavanaugh. So the thinking, the thinking, I'm sure, is um, that Justice Kavanaugh is going to join with the four who were okay with this law, were okay with this restriction on uh, the abortion rights of, of women in Texas. And, um, you know, what they're thinking is with, is with a, with a, with a differently constituted court, we're going to come to a different conclusion. I am sure if that comes to pass that you will see dissents from uh, Justice Ginsburg or Kagan or Sotomayor or Souter, you know, detailing, hey, this is the same case we just decided three years ago. And, you know, when we discussed stare decisis, Sandy, we, we, we talked about reliance on cases. Obviously, in, in the principle of stare decisis, lower courts are supposed to follow the, the precedent established by the Supreme Court. Here we have the Fifth Circuit basically blessing this law that is identical to the law that was struck down by the Supreme Court just three years ago. And so, you know, it begs the question. It seems to me that, that the plaintiffs uh, in this case, or, or I'm sorry, not, not the plaintiffs, the government um, trying to defend this law uh, um, were able to find willing participants at the Fifth Circuit to bless the law and get this case before the Supreme Court. And I'm sure that we're going to see in the, in the dissents, um, you know, uh, a, an attempted smackdown on the basis that, hey, look, we just decided this. You know, but, uh, well, but, 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 but the substantive argument here is that the act creates an undue burden. You know, that's the standard that's articulated in Planned Parenthood of Southeast PA v. Casey. Um, it was reiterated in, in Whole Women's Health. Um, namely that a court has to balance the law's burdens and benefits. Um, and, and, and if the burdens outweigh the benefits, you know, a court can, can conclude that the law or regulation imposes a substantial obstacle to women's abortion decisions. Um, the petitioners in this case, the people who are, are trying to get the law struck down, you know, they argue that the Fifth Circuit rewrote that standard as not requiring a balancing of burdens and benefits. Um, so in addition to kind of finding without evidence that, that more credentialing leads to better health outcomes, they really didn't even undertake a serious balancing of, of burdens and benefits. The evidence in the Louisiana case showed that, that if this law goes into effect, the entire state of Louisiana will shrink down to one abortion provider in the state. Now again, irrespective your personal views on abortion, it, it is, for the time being, a constitutional right, and we're not supposed to be placing undue burdens as a general matter on constitutional rights. Um, and, and certainly, you know, there's, there's, there's a host of issues here. Have you had a chance to look in depth at this case, Sandy? And well, obviously I've, I've, I'm aware of it and I've, I've uh, reviewed the, uh, the search petition yeah. and stuff. But uh, what I would say is that this is a perfect example of Justice Thomas's view of stare decisis. 
Right. If you really think the case is wrong, you overturn it. If you really think the case is right, you don't overturn it. Right. And I, as I said, as I said last time, we all believe that. It's right. It's just a matter of whose whose ox is being gored. Correct. Correct. I mean, look, you know, the court certainly can use this case to argue that uh, Roe versus Wade and all of the cases that follow Roe are not constitutionally sound. The court could go so far as to overrule Roe versus Wade. Um, we heard from Nancy Martyr last week, Sandy, that um, when she was clerking for Justice Stevens on the court and the, the, the Casey, uh, the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case was before the court, that she and the other clerks in Justice Stevens's uh, chambers all believed that that was going to be the end of, of Roe v. Wade. And so I think she actually maybe provides us with a little lesson here um, in not assuming that, you know, things are going to go the way you think that they're going to go. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's easy, it's, it's, it's low-hanging fruit to just say, well, the conservative justices are going to rule um, in favor of abortion restriction, and the liberal justices are going to rule in uh, against abortion restrictions. And look, it may well end up that way. Um, there's another principle. There's another principle in constitutional jurisprudence, which is if you don't have to resolve the constitutional issue, you don't resolve the constitutional issue. And you know, there certainly is an out here if Justice Roberts wanted to take it and wanted to to uh, you know draw the ire of. Uh, probably the priest at his Catholic church, I guess, but he could say, look, this matter has already been decided. Um, the Fifth Circuit was plainly wrong, did not follow our precedent. This was not any uh, uh, an issue upon which reasonable minds could differ. There wasn't really distinguishing facts in the evidentiary record, and so as such, we're, uh, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're throwing out that law as unconstitutional the same way we did with Texas. That's, that's an out. Say, or, or the court could say, uh, this statute is constitutional, but that does not affect, the, affect Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade stands. Right. Casey stands. Right. But this case does not, this statute does not violate either of them. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to me like the three most likely outcomes. Um, you know, some type of a, some type of a, 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 a I would call I guess I would call it a compromise in which one of the conservatives, one or more of the conservatives, would have to come and join the liberal justices who I'm certain will vote exactly the same way on this law that they did on the identical law three years ago. Uh, those being so it, so those, it centers on Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh is the, is, is the uh, swing vote on this because he's the only one who wasn't there three years ago. Well, well, actually, Gorsuch I don't think was either, but he's oh. but he's re, but he's replacing Scalia and and. Uh, um, so yeah, but, but, but I, but I do think, I do think Roberts is, is one to watch here as well. Again, it's easy to assume that people are just going to vote the same way that they voted three years ago, but Roberts, you know, we've talked before Sandy, I don't know if we did on air, but you, you and I certainly have spoken about it, um, uh, previously in our, in our own conversations, Justice Roberts's desire to improve and increase the, the, the perceptions of legitimacy of the court and not wanting it to appear like a purely partisan actor in our government. And I do think that there's an out here for Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, to say, you know, hey, look, this case was already decided. Fifth Circuit, 
you screwed up here. You know, I may personally believe that Roe v. Wade is, 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 is wrongly decided, but I'm going to decline the opportunity to, you know, really put the nail in the coffin by, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of leaning on the institution of the court and the institutions of the judiciary and the, 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 the traditions of following precedent and elevating that above the substantive issue at play here in this case. Um, I think that okay, that's... Like that. Go ahead. I'd like to, you know, talk about Justice Gorsuch for a sec. Sure. Now, um, I was reading the uh, transcripts of the various arguments this week, mm-hmm. and I found Justice Gorsuch asked very interesting questions. And they're, they're not necessarily questions grounded in personal political philosophy which is very conservative. Right. And I mean, obviously people in, in the people have, have said maybe Gorsuch will vote for the liberals in the Title Seven cases dealing with homosexuality and transsexual people, whether whether Title Seven uh, uh, protects them or not. Yeah. And we'll discuss that's that one. the question Yeah, that's because that's because of the question that he uh, that he asked and he asked he examines his own principle, his own conservative principles in a lot of these cases. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, and I, I think it, in most cases it won't mean, that he's going to vote with the uh, liberals just because he, he asks these questions. And I think it's a mistake for people to think that Gorsuch is going to be the fifth vote in the Title Seven cases. He won't be. I'm almost positive of that. And probably the same is true in the uh, abortion case. But... It's not impossible for him to think in a case like this where there's existing precedent, very recent, and which was ignored by the Fifth Circuit that he might take issue with that. Hmm. So I think it might be more likely that Gorsuch would be the, would be the fifth vote than it would be for the Chief Justice who voted just the opposite three years ago. Interesting. But That's... we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I, I think that that's. I think that's a uh, very interesting observation about Justice Gorsuch. I, I, I have heard the same about his his style at oral argument of, of being one who sort of, um, um, kind of revisits his priors. I guess maybe for, yeah, for lack of a better way of saying it. And and so that's that's interesting, in and of itself. That that he seems to be, at least intellectually curious and honest. Um, about about certain things. Look, it's it's easy to say, yeah, you know, we're going to get five conservative justices to bless this law, whether by striking down the entire constitutional firmament of the right to abortion, or whether just chipping away at it by saying, okay, well, this really isn't an undue burden from a constitutional standpoint to only leave the state of Louisiana with one abortion provider, or or to only leave. And honestly, and if 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 um, if the Supreme Court blesses this law, what's to stop Texas tomorrow from from reintroducing that exact same legislation that was struck down in 2016? Um, they'd be well. They'd be well within the rights to do it, and I would expect them to. I, I think that every state that favors restrictions on abortions will be pushing the uh, the boundaries to see what's going to be allowed and what's not going to be allowed if that happens. Yeah, we just had um, a case in, in in the district court in Alabama in which Alabama's uh, 
most recent abortion legislation was struck down, so that is certainly going to work its way up. And Alabama, for those who don't know, it, it had the most restrictive uh, uh, abortion regulations functionally outlawing abortion in the state of Alabama. Now that case, um, it, that, that law has been enjoined by the federal courts, so it is not currently in effect, but it's a law that provides up to 99 years in prison for abortion providers who perform abortions and um, also a, a lesser but very severe penalty for attempted abortions. And so, yeah, uh, look, people look at the makeup of this court, the, the, the more conservative makeup of this court, and, you know, they are, they are pushing the envelope at the state level for the purposes of getting these cases before the court, to give, court this, to give the Supreme Court a more conservative Supreme Court the opportunity to, you know, finally deliver uh, something that the conservative movement has, has long sought, which is overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, so when we talk about distilling these cases down for, you know, for lay people, it's really about what these cases mean in our everyday lives. And, and um, you know, you're in New Jersey, Sandy, and, and, and heading to New York. I, I'm, I'm in D.C. Um, you know, we don't have to worry too much about restrictions on, on abortion and family planning here in these jurisdictions. But there certainly are jurisdictions uh, out there where um, these restrictions are very real. So... That is one to watch. We, I have to, uh, I should have checked exactly when oral argument is going to be. I think we, they just granted cert, I think a couple of weeks ago in this case. Um, so, but at some point in this term, we are gonna have an opinion come down from the Supreme Court and it's, you know, at least- Probably on June 30th. It's, it's at least even money that this law is going to be upheld in some fashion and whether it's upheld by virtue of of striking down the entire constitutional uh, framework um, that was, you know, uh, uh, initiated with Roe versus Wade, or whether it just says, you know, hey, look, Roe is still good law, undue burden, yes, undue burden, but this isn't an undue burden. Um, so we'll see how that one goes, and when we have oral arguments, I'll be very interested to hear those oral arguments and hear the questions from the justices. So, all right, we're going to come back in a minute. And we're going to talk about what happens when a border agent in the United States shoots a Mexican national standing in Mexico. You'd think that uh, that's pretty cut and dry. It is not. And we're going to talk about it when we come right back. Hi, we're back to discuss uh, Hernandez versus Mesa, which is a case which the court will hear on Tuesday, November 12th. And it involves very interesting situation not as uncommon as i would have thought a border guard on the border of mexico shoots across the border and kills a 15 year old unarmed boy hmm. the thought yeah but it happened and actually happened in some cases is another case which i'll make mention of later in which the exact same thing happened, although my, I don't think it was a 15-year-old boy. But at any rate, the, the parents of the, of the child brought an action in federal court in the United States against the uh, gentleman who shot their son mm -hmm. under, the, under what's called the, uh, 
called uh, a, was, is a Bivens claim. And a Bivens claim is a claim that arises under a case of the Supreme Court back goes back to 1971 called Bivens versus six unknown named agents of Federal Bureau of Narcotics. That involved a case where an agent of uh, that bureau entered Bivens' apartment, arrested and shackled him in front of his wife and children, threatened to arrest the whole family, took him to the federal courthouse, interrogated, booked, and subjected him to a visual strip search. He sued, claiming that uh, they violated his Fourth Amendment rights. Now, interestingly, Bivens doesn't really go into whether there was an actual violation of the Fourth Amendment rights. It was just a, que- it was just a question of whether such a claim could be because Congress had never issued a uh, statute, never legislated on this issue as to whether there was a private cause of action for a violation of a constitutional provision. And the court decided in a seven to two decision that such a claim could be asserted. And since then, the question has always been, what, what are the standards of this? Whether Anything that you that you say that's a violation of the constitutional right is uh, cognizable in federal court or not, and the answer to that is sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. <laughs> that's most of the time, that always seems to be the answer. <laughs> yeah, and most of the times when when these issues have come to the court, at least since nineteen eighty, whenever they get to the Supreme Court, the court finds no remedy. Hmm. But in, in a couple, in 2018, there was a case called Ziegler versus Abbasi, and that was one of the 9/11 cases. It was a case where there were some people who were arrested after 9/11, put in prison, treated badly, blah blah, and um, they sued the government, saying, "You know, prison. we are entitled to uh, to recognize under because these people have violated our constitutional rights." And we have a cause of action under Bivens. Now, in Ziegler, the court found that there was a no right under Bivens, as has been the case in every case it's gone to the Supreme Court since the 1980s. But it set out fairly clearly how you could allege a Bivens claim that will survive. And there, there's two parts to this test. The first part is whether it this arises in a context different from the context in Bivens. Because obviously, if it, if it arises in the same context as Bivens, and of course there's a Bivens. But if it arises in a different context, then you have to look at other factors to decide whether the courts are going to recognize it as a proper cause of action. And the court says that... Uh, First, there has to be no other adequate remedy. Because if there's another adequate remedy, if you can sue under state law or, or even on, in, in federal law, on, under foreign law, then you uh, don't have a claim under Bivens. Because why should we be uh, extending Bivens when you could do when you could do get the same relief someplace else in some other fashion? Yeah. The second, this is one that's gonna on which this case is going to hinge, and which most cases are going to hinge, there must be no special facts that would cause hesitation in extending the Bivens remedy, even when no other remedy exists. So even though no other remedy exists, there might be special facts that 
that would cause a court to say, eh, maybe we shouldn't have. And, and that is so unclear as to what these special facts are and how they operate to give hesitation to a court to to extend Bivens. Uh, it's always going to be very fact-based. Mm-hmm. Okay, here, knowing that there was a new Bivens context for it was, there was a new context for a Bivens thing, but this is, deals with someone in the United States doing something which affects somebody in a foreign country. And so it's different. It, so that means we have to look at the other two factors that were raised in Bivens. The court noted there was no adequate remedy mm-hmm. because state court actions were preempted by the Westfall Act, which provides that... Uh, Constitutional courts cannot be uh, raised in in court. Constitutional claims cannot be raised in state court. No, constitutional torts. Oh, torts. Violations of constitutional law. They have they have to be in federal court. Gotcha. And if you, and in this case, if, if they want a Bivens claim, it can't even be be brought up in, in federal court. Right. Okay. So they so that they go to real decisive issue as to. Uh, the special facts. And the court kind of named a couple of special factors they thought were um, relevant. One was uh, extraterritoriality. God. For for our English-speaking friends. Extraterritoriality. Extraterritoriality. Foreign affairs. Yes. National security... (laughs) Uh, in foreign affairs, these were these were the issues that they raised. They were they were mentioned in uh, Ziegler. Mm-hmm. Uh, they 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 said they applied here as well. Yeah, and um, they held that the uh, cause of action under Bivens did not exist because there existed these special factors, and they were and they were facts that they that they felt would give them pause. Now, in dissent, Judge Prado, who evidently is a real Texan, we're in the Fifth Circuit court, again, right? We're in the Fifth Circuit again. We're in the we are in the Fifth Circuit. Yes, we are okay. in the Fifth Circuit. Gotcha. Oh, wait a minute, no, we're not in the Fifth Circuit. I think we're in the Eleventh Circuit. No, mm. <laughs> no, no, you're in the Fifth Circuit. We're definitely in the Fifth Circuit. Texas is Fifth okay. Circuit, yeah. I, you know, it used to be it used to all be the Fifth Circuit, and they got split yeah. into the Fifth and the Eleventh. But uh, yeah, no, this is the Fifth Circuit. He called the court's special factors analysis, as they say in Texas, all hat and no cattle. <laughs> that is the ultimate, the ultimate insult in Texas, from yes. what I'm from what I'm told. He noted, he said that in Abbasi, the plaintiff was attacking a government policy. Here, the plaintiff was only seeking to vindicate personal rights, and. Uh, yeah, I think that's Yeah, and I think that that's an interesting distinction here because when we think of constitutional rights and and a court, a federal court deciding uh, that that the government has violated some some individual's constitutional rights, it's usually a function of okay, we're striking down this law, we're vacating your uh, you know the conviction because the the you know the evidence was fruit of the poisonous tree, it was a legal search, and so you know there we go. This is a case here where. 
this individual's constitutional rights, and you know, we should note that constitutional rights do extend beyond the territory of the United States, and 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 you know, do protect even non-citizens. Um, and so, these are individuals seeking to vindicate uh, um, personal rights, uh, and 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 doing so by arguing a violation of the Constitution, which obviously a you know, shooting and killing somebody uh, as a government agent without you know, the, the, the strictures that are, at least in theory, supposed to be in, in place, that that is a violation of, of an individual's constitutional rights. So it is, um, it is interesting to look at uh, uh, this attempted vindication of constitutional rights in a, in a completely different context where we're not looking at, a, at, at government action um, sort of in, in, in broad terms and talking about whether uh, the court is going to, you know, I guess I like to use the term like bless this regulation or or throw it out. Um, here, you've got somebody actually suing the government because the government violated his constitutional rights, and that uh, I think is an interesting distinction. And as I mentioned earlier, there's another case, Rodriguez versus Schwartz, in the Ninth Circuit, where the Ninth Circuit found on facts that were identical. Someone, he shot somebody across the border, the, the, the uh, guard, and killed him. Uh, that they had, they had a claim. Yeah, yeah. I assume that. I mean, I'm not exactly sure of the posture of that case right now. I assume nothing is going to happen on it until this case is decided. So, do we have a circuit split? Is that why? Is that you think that's why it came before? You know, Actually, I, we do have, we do, we have, we clear, we have a clear circuit split. I do not think that there was a circuit split at the time that they petitioned, mm-hmm. but because the case Rodriguez was not mentioned in, in the petition for search, it was mentioned in the reply. Interesting, interesting. Um, I assume that. Know, I mean, putting came aside down in between. Yeah, putting aside the legal issues, just let's think about for a second the fact that we have two different federal circuits that have decided the same case of a border agent shooting an individual across. The border, um, that this is not a one-off. <laughs> this has it's, it's amazing. It's, I mean, just 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 putting aside the the, the legal ramifications, um, you know, going forward for whether you know whether this is a cognizable Bivens claim or not. Just think about what that says about our border patrol right now. It's it's um, yeah, it's disturbing to say the least. And and to me, this is a case that really talks about or is going to talk about and is going to enlighten us on sort of the, you know, how, how, how do we hold rogue government officials accountable? We're not talking about, okay, the government, you know, the elected government has decided that this is the policy we're going to have towards trade or this is the policy that we're going to have towards national security. I mean, this is not policy. This is a rogue government agent who clearly committed a crime and, and, you know, is there accountability? Is there, re, is there rational accountability for that type of act? I mean, you know, we're going we're gonna to find out. Look, conservative justices, as a general matter, do not like Bivens. Um, as a general matter, they don't like <laughs> governments or corporations being sued by people and opening those doors. Um, but certainly, Bivens has been, uh, to put it mildly, disfavored in conservative, uh, uh, conservative legal circles. Well, a decision by the Supreme Court in favor of 
uh, Mr. Mesa would really set a resounding signal to border guards and people in all, all kinds of government, walks of government to serve yeah. that they can do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. And there's, not, there's nothing that anybody can do about it. Go ahead and shoot you some I mean, Mexicans. Government, um, yeah, and unless the government decides to do something. I will, I will say that in uh, war, it mentioned that the government was going to prosecute Swartz mm-hmm. in Mesa. The government decided not to prosecute Mesa. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but Interesting. What they yeah. decided. It's a different government, that's for sure. All right, yeah, this is an interesting case. It's going to be argued on Tuesday, uh, this Tuesday. So, um, you know, we might be updating you guys uh, on the actual oral arguments and kind of get a sense of uh, maybe which way justices are leaning. As we always like to say here, it is folly to try to predict how a justice is going to vote in a case based on the questions he presents at oral argument. But oral arguments are always an interesting um, peak hole into the into the process and into the judge's thinking, certainly. Uh, we're going to talk about... And also argu- Go ahead, go ahead. And also argued on November 12th are going to be the DACA, quite, DACA cases. That, we're going to be talking that, that is correct. I was just about to say that, that when we come back from our break, we're going to talk about the future of DACA, which is before the court and is also going to be argued this coming week. So we'll be right back. And we're back. Welcome back. We're uh, in the home stretch here on our second episode of SCOTUS Pod. Sandy, uh, this has been a lot of fun and, and, and I always, always enjoy uh, us getting a chance to ruminate on what's going on at the court. This is a lot of fun. So let's get into our last uh, uh, kind of big case for, for the time being for this episode here. Um, another case that is going to be argued on Tuesday, in addition to the Hernandez v. Mesa case that we just discussed about the, the cross-border shooting, um, this is a case about the future of DACA. Uh, For those people who don't know, DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's a program that was instituted by President Obama in 2012, um, and it does exactly that. It defers action, action being deportation and or removal, um, you know, for undocumented individuals who were brought to the United States as children. Um, Just really quickly, because there's a a pretty rigorous set of requirements in order to in order to be eligible uh, for for this deferred action. The requirements include that you entered the United States before the age of 16, that you had continuously resided in the United States since 2007. Recall that this action took place in 2012, um, that you were in school, having graduated high school, have a GED, or have been honorably discharged from military service, um, that you have no criminal record and are not a threat to national security, you're under the age of 31 as of uh, in June 2012, and that you do not have lawful immigration status. If you, people who meet these criteria and, and, and successfully applied for DACA status um, receive protection in, 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 in the way of deferred action, um, and also provides for employment authorization documents, uh, or you know, work, work authorization. Um, there are about, a little over 700,000, I believe, individuals who uh, applied for and were enjoying DACA status um, when the program was rescinded. 
there's some estimates that it's well over a million people who are DACA eligible, uh, the total universe of people who could be covered by DACA. Um, so what happened was, you know, this was a, a program of the Obama administration. And as a general matter in immigration, the executive has broad discretion, broad discretion. You know, there, there are limited resources in the immigration enforcement uh, um, uh, scheme, and presidents can, can prioritize, you know, who we're going to go after. And, and President Obama essentially said through DACA, these individuals are the lowest priority functionally, that we're never going to get around to deporting them and, and actually giving them um, an, an, an articulated pass on immigration enforcement. So the Trump administration rescinded this program in 2017. And you know, as we noted, there were about 700,000 DACA recipients um, who suddenly find themselves at risk of deportation They've provided all of their personal information to the government, um, and they, you know, are are in danger of deportation. Many of these people, having been brought over as little as, as small children, the United States may functionally be the only place they've ever known, um, and so this case has uh, real world implications for a lot, a lot of people. Um, let me, yes, let me ahead. ask you a question. Yeah. This DACA is, is comes out under executive order, right? Right. So, why should it not be possible for a subsequent president to say, "I don't want to continue this procedure that was set up by my predecessor"? Yeah. Well, I don't agree with in the first place on any. Of it. That's an excellent, excellent question, Sandy. Um, and the reason that is is because. The government can't take actions that are arbitrary and capricious. You know, I think there's a recognition that all government action can create requirements, can create rights, can create obligations, can create, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, ha government action has effect on, on people and people's lives. And so the government cannot simply just arbitrarily and capriciously say, eh, mm, no, we don't like it. We don't like it. You have so, to have so a well, decision of one president. So a decision by one president can be binding on the next president, even though we didn't agree with the policy. Yeah, I don't know that I would say it's binding. I would say you've got to have a well-articulated reason for the action that you take. Essentially, government has to have a good reason for the things that they do, because most government action involves some form of, you know, winners over here and losers over here. And in this case, you had a government action, the rescission of DACA, which was going to have about 700,000 losers. Um, and so it's not good enough to say, we just don't like it. We just don't like is it. There a lot of, is there a lot of opposition to DACA in, in the United States? I mean, DACA is very popular. Uh, uh, I haven't looked at the most recent polling, but I have... From, from the last polling that I've seen on DACA, it even enjoys majority support among Republicans, um, to say nothing of independents and, and, and Democrats 
uh, in which it enjoys, I think, overwhelming support. Um, it's a very popular program, and 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 you know, there's a bit of political genius here by 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 really honing in on a a very um, favorable looking group of of young people who are getting their educations here in the United States or who have served the United States in, in the United States military, um, who the only reason that they are here without lawful status is because they were brought here by their parents as children. Um, they had no choice to come here uh, illegally and, and as such, um, you know, they shouldn't, they shouldn't be punished um, by being removed from, you know, in many instances, the only home that they have really known. Um, so it is a very popular program um, that did yep. not that did not stop the Trump administration from saying, uh, you know, the the party's over. Go ahead. Am, am I am I wrong? And I thought I had heard that uh, Ted Olson, the former Solicitor General during the uh, George W. Bush. Uh, term is arguing in favor of the dreamers. Uh, is that is that correct? Um, he may be on one of the amicus briefs. I, I I didn't peruse the amicus briefs as closely as I did the 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 main briefs. Um, but essentially, what okay, we I, I, go ahead. I was listening to something on the radio or something. I, I heard his name pop up. I thought he was actually representing the dreamers, but evidently not. What, are you listening to Supreme Court Radio or something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's on, uh, <laughs> on Sirius XM? On Sirius. This is a <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. I was not aware that they had that. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk about some arguments in favor, or I'm sorry, arguments against the Trump administration's rescission here. Um, well, what, what's happened so far in the court below? Where, where are we? Procedurally. Procedurally, the rescission of DACA has been enjoined by the courts below, and that has not been disturbed yet by the Supreme Court. So um, people are still actually applying for renewals of DACA status. People are actually... How often do they have to renew? Uh, every two years. Every two years. Okay. Every two years. So really quickly, because we're, 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 we're coming up on it. Um... The arguments in favor of DACA were that the rescission was arbitrary and capricious. You know, that's the standard that courts use to determine whether agency actions are legally sound. Um, you know, like I said before, government has to have good reason to do what it proposes to do and has to examine burdens and benefits. You know, we talked about those burdens and benefits when we talked about the Louisiana abortion case. Um, again, so, you know, government has to articulate reasons. Um, and those reasons have to be contemporaneous with proposed agency action. We're, we actually have a situation here that's similar to the census case that we discussed in episode one, in which you have kind of like a post hoc rationalization for um, for the agency action. The stated agent, the stated rationale for the agency action was a letter from the then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, basically saying DACA is unlawful because a Texas court found that. Um, a similar case that, uh, or, or a similar program that, that was proposed by the Obama administration called DAPA, D-A-P-A, which is Deferred Action for, for Parents, um, 
that that was unlawful, that that violated the Immigration and National Naturalization Act, and as such was, you know, not, uh, uh, not viable. And so Attorney General Sessions stated in a letter that, uh, you know, on the basis of that case, which didn't get up to the Supreme Court, it was only, again, the Fifth Circuit we're talking about here, um, uh, that on that basis, they felt the entire DACA program was unlawful, and so they, they rescinded it. Um, you saw uh, at, at the time Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, um, uh, prepared a memo or signed a memo that somebody else prepared, and uh, uh, that was supposed to provide a more detailed rationale. Uh, but uh, you know, there's there's certainly been some discussion that 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 is post hoc rationalization. Now the arguments on the other side, not arbitrary and capricious, because DHS has the authority to decide whether to remove on a case by case basis. So that essentially, DHS could look at an individual case and say, you know, look, you're someone who was brought here uh, as a child, and so, uh, you know, you've got a clean record and, and, and everything, so we're, we're not going to try to re have you removed. Um, you know, it's debatable whether if an individual comes into in, uh, immigration, uh, uh, into contact with immigration authorities, whether uh, they would be so magnanimous, but, you know, DHS at least has that authority, and that it's better to do this on a case-by-case -case basis rather than have a, a broad grant of immunity from removal. So, look, we know that presidents have wide latitude to determine which classes of individuals are priorities, um, you know, for the limited immigration resources of the federal government, and presidents of both parties have used this authority in the past. So, um, one way or another, we're going to have, I think, a ruling on whether uh, the, the DACA program will continue um, on the basis of President Obama's executive authority, or as you state, as you state, Sandy, whether um, whether uh, uh, we can have a president of a different party say, "Look, we don't like that, and we're going to we're going to stop that that policy, that program." So, um, let's. Uh, I want to wrap up really quickly and talk about, you know, we keep talking about how this is going to be a, a hugely consequential term at the Supreme Court, just from the cases that we know are going to come up. We're going to talk about gun rights. We're going to talk, we talked earlier about abortion rights, immigration rights here with this DACA case and other immigration cases, um, LGBTQ rights uh, in the Title VII cases that were argued last month that we're probably going to dig into um, more in depth at uh, uh, when we get to episode 01.03. Um, but we're also expecting the court to have pronouncements on, you know, what's going on with President Trump and, and, and impeachment and, and investigations. And, you know, there's a lot of these issues that are likely to come up to the court. Um, we actually had a case that was just decided I believe, was it the Second Circuit, Sandy? It was the Second Circuit, my yeah. neighbors. Tell us about it, really quickly. Well, Cyrus Vance, who's district attorney for uh, New York County, um, commenced a grand jury investigation of Donald Trump and was seeking from his accountant his tax records. As you know, Donald Trump is like the only president since 
you know, since the 19th century, who has not turned over his tax records so that people could look at them and see that he's a good guy and he hasn't done anything illegal. Right. For some reason, Donald Trump does not think it's appropriate for him to uh, yeah. allow the citizens of this country to look at his tax records. And so he brought a federal action in the district of the Southern District of New York to uh, stop them from subpoenaing his uh, tax records. To stop the New York DA, to stop the New York DA from getting the tax records. Correct. Yeah. And claimed that he had, that it was protected under executive privilege. He didn't didn't have to do it, blah, blah, blah. And he lost in the district court. And he appealed to the Second Circuit. And the Second Circuit just decided that he did have to, that those documents did have to be turned over. Mm-hmm. And they not be turned over right away because it was an agreement between the parties that if the Second Circuit ruled in favor of Cyrus Vance, that he would take no action uh, and allow uh, Trump to file a cert, uh, petition for certiorari in the Supreme Court as long as he did it within 10 days of the decision, mm-hmm. which, as far as I know, he is. his lawyers are probably working on very... Uh, Hard at this moment, and I expect within the next week we will hear that a petition has been has been filed. I did want to mention uh, that during oral argument for this case, Judge Chin, Danny Chin, uh, raised a hypothetical that will probably be familiar to most most of you. He said, "What happens if Trump went out to the middle of Fifth Avenue and shot somebody? Could the district attorney do anything about that?" And the answer from Trump's lawyers was, no, they could not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hmm. Hard to believe. You know, it's a hypothetical. And you know, probably Trump won't go out in the middle of this avenue and shoot anybody. But these days, you just never know. <laughs> you do never know. You do never know. Um, so, again, you know. Stay tuned to SCOTUS Pod because we are going to be talking a lot about those issues, when they come up before the court, we'll be examining those, those briefs, those arguments, those oral arguments, and when the opinions actually come down, what they mean and, and what they say. Um, it'll be interesting, um, Sandy, to see if, uh, if this, this, this Trump v. Vance case comes up to the Supreme Court. I tend to think the court will probably not grant cert in this case, but, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at predictions, as, as my sports betting and, 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 and fantasy, and fantasy football team will, will, will attest. <laughs> and there's similar cases coming up from the D.C. Coming from the DC circuit, yeah. which also uh, has issued a decision requiring him to turn mm-hmm. over his tax records. Yeah, yeah, I tend to think, I tend to think that the, 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 the Trump-related cases that are going to wind their way to the Supreme Court are probably going to be more fights between Trump and Congress as opposed to between Trump and the states. But this Vance case, certainly, um, there, are, there certainly are issues uh, that the court could take up, uh, that, that the Supreme Court could take up in this, in this matter. So, um, well, Sandy, I think that that wraps up episode 01.02. Um, I think this was, a, this was a lot of fun, as always. And, and um, you know, we welcome our listeners to engage with us. Uh, we're on Twitter, at SCOTUSpod. You can always email us, scotuspod at gmail.com. Um, please subscribe, 
rate our podcast, um, but only rate our podcast if you have good things to say. <laughs> Please. And uh, I, but 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 we do we do accept uh, constructive criticism. And I do and I do want to say this has not been all hatch and no cattle. There's been a lot of cattle. There's been a lot of cattle here in this episode of Scotus Pod. Uh, a lot of great stuff. Well, Sandy, it's been great uh, uh, doing this again with you, and I look forward to episode 01.03. Thank you all for joining. <laughs>